All right, everybody. So today we have on the podcast someone who's a little new to the scene, right? A little new, you know, first timer here. Master, master, doctor, Eric Helms, PhD, CSCS, WNBF Pro. We got enough in there? Oh man, that that last one is uh, is 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 quite the emotional addition to the to the to the to the name. But um, yeah, it's good to be uh, here for the first time on your podcast and uh, introducing myself to the wide world of fitness. Um, yes. Yeah, thanks for having this me back, dude. Places. <laughs> so uh yeah man so you've had a, a busy few months i mean really more than a few months right to get ready for it to be had honest few... i've had an incredibly busy year man yeah. so it's been a really cool year i if we kind of go all the way back i early in the year i coached at the inaugural uh sheffield which is pretty badass um i was there with jess bittner that was really cool okay. and then i went to uh mexico with alberto nunez and uh his his partner cynthia and we presented there which was my first first time really kind of doing the thing in mexico which is really really cool with uh like an evidence-based personal training company there um june i coached at ipf worlds powerlifting july uh omar and i did the last bit of our filming for the uh, iron culture documentary we're working on got my body fat tested at grant tinsley's lab met ronnie coleman yeah yes all that it's it's been a huge year man and um yeah i went to game day barbell did our thing there filmed at um at the stark center which is the biggest repository of history of physical culture um get back from that in july did the uebc for like my Jillionth time with JPS Health and Fitness presented yeah, there, yeah. which is a lot of fun. Um, and then yeah, not too long after that, jumped into my first show of the season on September 30th, and uh was really honored to win the the title in WBF New Zealand. And the yeah. second time we've had the show, I judged at it last year. And then I immediately went to the States, competed two back-to-back shows, came home. Two weeks later, I competed at the first of the... It's not the first WBF Australia show because there was a prior affiliate. But with the new affiliate, it's the first WBF Australia show, okay. um, which was two weeks ago. And now I'm one week out from WBF Worlds. So You've had how many shows in. so far? I have had four shows. Wow. In how many weeks? Five. Wow. Jeez. So when it's all said and done, I'll have six shows done. Sorry, five shows done in uh, eight weeks, and it'll have been 41 weeks of dieting. Man, a lot of dieting, man. Hey, man, got to do what you got to do. And we'll, uh, we won't ruin the surprise here, right? But I think we're going to do a a collab with a special guest after your next show, right? Yes, sir. I'm down. So uh, we'll get to get some updates there as well, which will be good. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So what are what are your expectations for Worlds? I mean, you know, you kind of talked about it. it's been so much to get to this point, right? And any thoughts going in? You're just going to say, you know, it's obviously doing your best. Uh, I mean, I, it's a little more complex than that because I have, uh, you know, like emotions around this. The um, My goal of this season was to simply like my competitive outcome goal was to be able to compete at worlds 
in the pro division. So as long as the, the flight doesn't get canceled or I don't know, it, it, like bad things happen in life that like that, that prevents me from getting on stage. I've essentially already completed that goal. I have literally zero expectations of uh, what happens when I get on the pro stage. Um, okay. When you're doing your pro debut three weeks after winning your pro card in the most competitive show in the world. Um, I mean, it for me, it's like being up there is amazing. You know, sure. like part of me, it's like, hey, I want to get pictures while I get dunked on by by Jordan or from right, right, right. <laughs> the, the, the younger crowd, LeBron, you know? Yeah. Um, now, with that said, I absolutely want to represent and bring the best physique I can. You know, I want I want to show that I'm also pro worthy. Um, and it's not to say if I like if I place last, I'm still you know pro worthy. Like somebody's got to be the the guy coming to sure. last. The pros. <laughs> so I I honestly I don't think there's anything that could happen um, that would unless like I somehow do something crazy and like spill over and look terrible. Yeah, yeah. But I like I'm not going to do that. So uh, there's nothing that could happen on game day that would make me disappointed with the outcome of the season. And that's a really, um, it's a unique feeling to have accomplished the goal at the show before I've competed in the show, um, which is pretty cool. So I'm there. There's a lot of depth to this, but I think one thing I'll I'll say on the front end is that um, obviously people wouldn't compete if they didn't have some degree of competitive aspirations, even if they're, they're really low down the list. Clearly you want to do well as a competitor. And one thing that I'm really happy about is this season, I really allowed myself to lean into my competitive drive to, you know, let, let the dog out, if you will, and be like, look, I'm here to win. Um, and when I finally did and got my pro card, I didn't lose any motivation to then go into worlds because I, I was didn't have ask a ask about that. Cause like some people I would imagine it's like, Oh, well, I've already kind of achieved it. I know you've discussed several times how you are at heart, a very competitive person. So it probably mm-hmm. wouldn't affect you maybe in that way. So here's the thing, man, I was relieved to find out that I had no less drive. It's been no harder to adhere. Um, if anything, I've been less stressed um, because there's less writing on this, but it hasn't changed what I'm doing or my desire to be at worlds. And that tells me that, my intrinsic motivation to compete and get on stage is much richer than simply trying to win. Um, and that's something I've cultivated over Jesus. This can make me sound old 16 years of competing, you know, yeah. oh, wow. Of competing. Jeez. Of competing. Oh, seven, my first season. So, um, you know, like I have found various ways that bodybuilding has like infiltrated my psyche, soul and, and, and intellect and everything. It's, Obviously, it's it's my career. It's my intellectual pursuit. I've connected with the history. Uh, I connect with the artistry of it. Um, I do think competitive bodybuilding is both a sport and an art. So it's a competitive outlet. And something I like about competing, whether it's powerlifting, bodybuilding, strongman, weightlifting, um, is it's kind of like an external validation of something that is an internal journey. So like let me, let me say what I mean. I'm like, if I just did a photo shoot, I could schedule when that was. If I'm looking shitty and, uh, and the photographer's there who I hired for the day, I'm like, oh, hold on. Let me, like, I need another hour because I'm going to yeah, go yeah, pee yeah. And, and like, I need to get some more carbs in me and I'll look better in a second. Right. Um, 
and then I can delete the, the photos that I don't like and the photographer's there to help me look my best, right? Um, but when you do a show, you're going, I accept your lighting, your time, your date, your judges, whoever else you're going to stand me up next to, your background, your rules, all of that. I don't get to hit poses that, that aren't on the list, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is basically taking, uh, it's like a competitive art and that even if you are only interested in your own outcome, you get to say like, well, you know, let's let's really see if I've made some progress. Let's really see if I can be at my best um, when I'm thrown into a, a situation I don't have full control over. Um, right. So it's a little different than maxing out in the gym. And I don't expect other people to have that same perspective. Um, I don't think you need to have that perspective, but it means something to me. So being my best at a competition independent of the outcome also fills a competitive desire, which I think is a, maybe a unique perspective or at least rare. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So like I express myself artistically through it. Um, I find the actual contest prep process uh, emotionally transformative because your stress levels come up so much that a lot of the things you manage um, that you manage well in the off season, like, you know, things you get annoyed with or, you know, like things you would neglect. Um, those things will come to the surface. So like all the personal work you've done to be less of a shitty person and more of who you want to be in life, right. it erodes. It erodes a little bit. And you get mm. to see how thin that veneer is or whether you've really developed new habits. And you can trace those back and then work on yourself. So um, my goal with each prep is to have it be less of an impact on myself and those around me and less of a disruption to life and more of something that enhances it. And that's been successful. So like yeah. that crucible, I think is ultimately something where that's why I think I'll still be competing when I'm 60 and 70, even if I'm not necessarily really better than I was, you know, in my forties or fifties um, because it's about being my best right now and about challenging myself and about that other aspect I said, where I'm giving it up out of my hands to see if I can do that externally. So it'll mean diff something different and I may not want to compete as often. And I, you know, I may decide to retire or whatever. It may just not have that same appeal, but looking prospectively, my guess is that all these other things will be enough to keep me competing. Yeah. And part of the proof of that is that I fulfilled my competitive desire, the most ex extrinsic aspect of all my motivations. And it didn't diminish my desire to compete at worlds. At right. all. No wind out of my sails. So it, it makes me realize I was afraid. I was literally afraid, Dave, that if I let myself be as competitive as I wanted to be, that it would um, take away from those other aspects because I've seen that happen in other people. And I've actually seen that happen in myself mm. um, early, early on in my career. You know, I started lifting in 2004 and then my first competitive season was 07. And I remember saying in 07, I'm not sure if I would keep lifting if I didn't think I could become Mr. Natural Olympia. I remember I said you that. Yeah, you, you yeah. said that before, which is interesting. Even going back to the uh, like the fear of that bringing out something in you, um, I don't know if you were at all following anything like Mike Tyson's kind of quote unquote comeback, but he he had basically stopped training completely, and he said that competitive drive scared him. Like that was like the words he used because some people just are so competitive, and then that just becomes everything, and maybe like you said, almost kind of covers other things you've been working on throughout that time. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's. Even there's even research showing how extrinsic rewards, when they're focused on, especially to the exclusion of the intrinsic process that you get out of it, yeah. can subvert your intrinsic drive. You know, so 
just seeing how strong it was and that how only three years in I was lifting, loving it. And, um, hadn't always very quickly, I decided I wanted to compete, but I hadn't always wanted to, um, or thought about it that I would stop training. Like this, the, the, that those words could come out of my mouth. I was like, that's like almost within seconds. I was like, I looked at my wife and I was like, that's not good. You know, mm-hmm. like it was, it was a moment of realization where I was like externally processing something, but just speaking what was on my mind. Um, so, you know, you know, and then there was a very intentional pursuit of trying to change that. That's kind of the story of what drew me to Jeff Alberts and his blog, 3D Muscle Journey, and then created it into an actual business and company and coaching philosophy and approach to the sport and kind of ethos and community that I've been trying to live. So like, I was like, oh, that's bad. And I've seen the sport chew up and spit so many people out partially for that reason. And I was like, listen, I, I know that's in me and I don't want to let that happen. So I've always been like, it's okay to be competitive, but it's got to be like bottom of the list, mm-hmm. you know? And I think this time I was just honest with myself. I was like, I really want to get a pro card and see how far I can take this. And I, I want to, I want to compete and I'm going to put no limits on that. And I'm going to express it. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to enjoy it. Uh, and, and also I'm going to feel shitty when I lose you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, you know, like, and there were like every show I did, um, there were, there was a mixed bag of feelings. Um, until the, obviously the last one was almost entirely yeah. positive because I won my pro card and I was like, and I'm going to be okay. I'm going to, I'm a big boy. I'm an adult. I can handle losses. I've handled much harder losses than a freaking bodybuilding show. Right. So I, it was a process of just giving myself credit and then pleasantly being, I probably shouldn't be surprised, but uh, being pleasantly surprised that, yeah, once that was said and done and the competitive aspect had been fulfilled, that I was no less invested. So it gets, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a pat on the back of my own intrinsic drive and what I've cultivated over 19 years of lifting and that I'm, I'm here, man. And it's, it's in me, like it's in my blood and it's not going anywhere, even if I want a, a trophy or a card or a medal. Yeah. Yeah. I almost forgot how quickly you competed because that's, I mean, you were, older than I was when we started lifting, but I know we've been lifting about the same amount of time, but in three years, I mean, what, what did you compete at weight wise? Yeah, man. So I started lifting when I was 21. I turned 40 this year. It's actually another big milestone, oh, yeah. you know, and, and that what happened this year, I turned 40, I turned 40 in, in, uh, in Mexico. It was really cool. Oh, cool. Um, so yeah, man, I started lifting and I had just turned 21 and I think I'd started lifting around a buck 70, buck 75, somewhere in there. Oh, okay. So you were already, yeah. And then I competed as, as often as the case, you know, at 178. So yeah. it's like, you know, you're just nearly you, like for competitive bodybuilders who get decently lean, you get back to where you started, but yeah, you yeah. are, you know, like no, no body fat. Um, yeah. So I was 178 my very first season and I did not have hamstrings or glutes. Uh, and my quad separation was like partially there. So I was probably like, if I was coaching 2007, Eric, and he was like, listen, get me shredded. Mm -hmm. I probably needed to lose another eight or nine pounds. I had to guess like I was in good shape, but I think there's, I mean, there's conditioning and there's conditioning. If I wanted to get like legally shredded, then Mm -hmm. I probably needed to lose like five pounds. But if I wanted to get like, holy shit. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking more. Now, what did you weigh most recently when you competed and won the pro card? Yeah, so my actual weigh-in uh, was almost identical. 
Yeah. So it was like, yeah, I think the lowest weigh-in I've had this prep is like one, like a depleted, dehydrated back from a flight, 173 or 174. Wow. Um, but like this morning, I was 176 or 175. Okay. So like, yeah, like a, a not totally depleted or dehydrated body weight for me is between 175 to 180. And yeah. then when I weigh in on the show carved up, um, I'm closer to, to 180 than I am 175, de- just depending on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like and that. when you yet, yeah, you know, that first show, when you say 178, that was on stage or that was the depleted version? I don't remember um, okay. because it was 2007, but I, yeah, I think, well, actually I do remember 2009 and I was uh, in the, I was like 180 on stage. So mm-hmm. I think, okay. so pretty, so like pretty similar stage weight. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this is as lean as I think, I think at the WNBF Australia show, that was either the leanest I've ever been or basically the same as yeah. like 20, 2019 was my conditioning peak at the, at the mayhem. And okay. I think I, I equaled that and I've, I've surpassed that in the last week or two. Mm, nice. Okay. Uh, Cause we, Berto and I were like, Hey, let's, we got three weeks till worlds. We're going to need some time to fill out because of yeah. how, you know, and um, and we know what happened in 2019 when you ate up at your shows. You looked a lot better. So let's try to get like at least a week of that, if not a week and a half. So yeah, we basically sp- split it. So I had a week and a half of of a little extra dieting, uh, and then now a week and a half of just walking my calories up. I think it's just so interesting to hear with, with natural bodybuilders because you know people who are just so into the world of like Instagram and uh, maybe we're like IFBB pros and whatnot, and it's like oh wow, like you know, one season to the next 20 pounds or something absurd. Right. And I actually, I mean, I knew you had a pretty strong response earlier than I did for sure, but, but more than many people did. Um, But I didn't realize it was that much of a response where you were actually competing at the same weight. Now, obviously it's much leaner, but even by your own, you know, statement there to be as lean as you are now, let's say you maybe would have had to be 170, let's call it. So you know, maybe eight or nine pounds of muscle at the same leanness. But that's, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of muscle on a 5% body fat individual, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But that's also what, 16 years ago. So it's like the refinements really come from you and many other people have said it that with with, um, natural bodybuilding, it's it is almost like a conditioning contest, not that the muscle is not important, but you really got to make sure you're conditioned because that's what's going to stand out. And you probably in a lot of cases can't say, well, I need to add eight pounds of muscle, and then I'm going to be competitive if, if you've been doing it for a long time. I mean, yeah, I think this is an interesting thing. I'm, I'm actually really glad there's folks like yourself, GVS, and some of the other voices who are not competitors who are in the space right now talking about natural bodybuilding. Um, because if you go back not too far, a lot of the people who are kind of leading the space in like hypertrophy training and, and were present and, and a lot of non-competitors are looking up to it. And it's still that case to some degree. Um, our competitors, you know, like you're, you're this two generations back, you got Matt Ogish, you got me, all the 3DMJ guys, you got Lane Norton. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just think about who, who was present on social media and talking about how to do things. And there's a different mindset when you're a competitor and there needs to be, um, like we don't talk about how big your, like your inches on your arms or your inches on your waist or the pounds change. And I think there's probably too much of a focus on it to be honest. Cause I think a lot of it comes from like setting limits and insecurity 
of like natural limits, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I think you've done a very good job talking around that in a very um, nuanced perspective, bringing in other voices, taking on board, you know, subtle, like minor critiques that other people might have. And, and, and then just discussing it. I've, you've done a great job with that, by the way. Thank you. Um, and I think like how many more pounds of muscle can I put on is, is a question that is, it, it, it doesn't represent what you really need to focus on as a competitor. And the competitors who do focus on that often don't make very good changes to their physique, interestingly enough, because they they think like, well, if my stage weight's not moving up, then I'm not improving. And then they do things and they like they're the ones who conditioning doesn't get better season to season sometimes and sometimes even gets because worse. Because they're worried about the weight. Yeah, they're like, well, what's the point if I'm not two pounds up on stage weight? I'm going to look the same. And I think um, that's not the way competitive bodybuilding is uh is is judged and i know that your listeners are very primed for like well in 10 years like the first five years how many muscle pounds of muscle do i gain and if i only gain two pounds in the next three years well, what's the proportional difference like they're very they're very cued in to think that way yeah, no yeah, offense yeah. <laughs> but, no, no. but let, let's think of it this way okay i had um noticeably better physique to to um, to, 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 to my people some sure. people might you mentioned how like you you showed a picture of your mom uh, Brian Whitaker from two yeah, different yeah. seasons. Look at those improvements. She's like, those are the same picture. Exactly. You know, so it's possible it's a little bit of that. But an example would be comparing my front lat spread from 2023 to 2019 with uh, a stage weight that was in, within the margin of error that you could say is the same. But I look better. And if you really kind of look in and go, okay, what is looking better about him? And what you can really see is that my delts are more capped. And in that pose, that is a critical aspect that brings the entire physique together. It enhances the appearance of width, and it makes the whole physique flow better. And I think it could quite literally move me up in that shot one or two placings if you were to compare me into 2019, where you don't see it. But let's talk about how much weight of muscle you need to push your medial deltoid out another centimeter. Are we talking a hundred grams of tissue? You know, so like that's the type of thing that is is that's the way you need to think of it as a competitor. Like, what regions of what muscles that I actually have agency over controlling in the poses I hit do I need to focus on? You know, like yeah. And also, I got a few people who finally commented on my calves. Like, you know what, Eric? You know, you keep I, I'm noticing your back and your delts are better this year, but. I did actually look at your calves and they do look a little bit better. And I'm like, fuck yeah, I put a lot of work into yeah. those, man. We'll they have to come back to that later. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to come back to that. Yeah. So the cat, my calves look better. I have like new vascularity in them. There's like a, there's, there's actually like an underhang and there's a little cut. I mean, they're still not great, but like in my pictures, I doesn't look like I have weak calves. So yeah. I've gone from weak calves to, to he has calves. And again, how much muscle mass do you think there is when you add, you know, we're talking a, a visible amount, but not that much to your calves. Like, yeah, 60 grams per calf. Like, I don't know, you know? So it's like the amount of weight that I'm adding there is something that is easily going to get overlooked when you look at the scale. And if you go through a contest prep and you're eating less or more vegetables, you know, on, on your diet habitually, oh, yeah. That's going to weigh more in your gut than than the amount that's been put on your your shoulders and your lats. So, all this is to say that 
while there's this intense focus for the intermediate recreational lifter on body fat percentage estimation, I mean, looking at myself in the mirror, the fat-free mass index based upon all these incorrect assumptions, how many years, and then how much muscle did I gain? I think that's not a complete fool's errand for a competitor, but it is not relevant. And it's not what you focus on, especially considering that like other sports at the highest level, marginal changes make bigger differences. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you think about what do you need to run in the 100 meter dash to uh, to be the best high school sprinter in, in the United States, we're talking like a 10 to 10 one or something like that. 10, three, I don't know, somewhere in that range. And then what does it take to go from there to be a really, really good NCAA sprinter? Now you're like, you need to hit a 10 flat, maybe break the 10 second barrier. And if you do, okay, then you go to Olympic trials. But if you barely break in a 10 and you, you may not make the Olympics, but if you do make the Olympics and you're just below 10, you're going to place 10th. But if you can run a 10, eight, now you're like, you're in the hunt for some, some, a medal around you now. A nine, eight. Sorry. Yeah. Nine, eight. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. My, my prep brain did not have the right number. Um, so those improvements are very tiny. And when you go from being a, a freshman sprinter, you run like a 14 to then being a, a senior in high school. And you're running like, again, if you're, if you're going to be best, best in the, in the state or the country, like a 10 something, you know, like you're making a 40% improvement in your time. And then you will never get that kind of, of change. Mm-hmm. But the accolade, the difference, uh, the way you're perceived, those smaller changes make a bigger difference. And you guys did a good job talking about this. It's like when you move from the 85th percentile, when you start lifting and you're like at the 50th percentile, and if you have decent genetics and you move up to the 80th or 85th percentile, that's a big change and all your friends and family notice you. Mm-hmm. But you move from the 85th to the 95th percentile of natural lifters, and now no one thinks you're natural anymore. So yeah. it is like it elevates you out of the stratosphere, which which is great for competitors. You know, you spend your whole life deciding to be drug free and then you're a cheater. So that's the right. reward. <laughs> right. um, it's good times. So I think, yeah, it, it, those are all things that um, co- like competitors frame differently and need to frame differently. And that the, especially the disillusioned intermediate who's like, what's the point of, you know, um, who... I, I think some of it's what, what does the industry focus on? Yeah. Like, oh, you're doing this for all these external reasons. Like you got into it to impress girls or improve your social status. And like, that's the way the world works. Um, and if you choose to view the world in that way, then you're going to miss out on most of the benefits of lifting and you're probably not going to stick with it. And then the the ROI is going to stop making sense because it's transactional sure. rather than an investment in yourself and a practice, a discipline, you know, it's like I, all of a sudden think... you... The 50-year-old Japanese sushi chef is, like, if you think about it that way, he's like, why am I cutting this this fish? I, if I cut it 10% worse, I'd still get just as many customers. And it's like, maybe that's not what it is for him, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, No, I, I think the distinction you make between the competitors is important because obviously for most people, those, those little, little details don't matter, right? I mean, the vast majority of gen pop for sure, but even in like the YouTube fitness community and the people watching this channel and everything is not going to matter. But I think, like you said, like the, the amount of actual weight, if we just go back to that specific example is not going to change that much compared to even like visually, if, if you are getting to the point that you are so lean that you can reasonably step on stage and somebody were to say, okay, you can gain 
maybe you disagree with me. I'd like to know your opinion, but if you said, okay, you could gain one or two pounds of muscle before you're about to go on stage or lose one or two pounds of fat before going on stage, that fat loss is going to be a way bigger difference, right? Than the one or two pounds of muscle, because that conditioning is, it's gotta be so on point at that level. Right. Um, now if, if you're 15% body fat, like that one or two pounds of fat might not matter that much. So just everything comes out when you're so lean, which again, maybe goes back to why for most people, they don't need to worry about it. Because like, if you, Eric had just said, Hey, for the rest of my life, I'm 15% body fat, that 60 grams here and there just might not even be apparent. Like you might actually believe, and by all measures think I haven't made any progress. And that is only recognized when you're stage lean. That is a hundred percent true. I don't disagree at all. I, so there's four years between my 2019 and my 2023 season. And I did a lot of work specifically on my delts, lats, and calves. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking trust in the process is, 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 is the, is the name of the game. Like I'm yeah, on a plane for 12 hours. Right. And I've got a boot on my calf and people like, are looking at me like I'm crazy. And, you know, like, um, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm training five days per week and every session starts with four sets of delts, lats, and calves. And then I do my normal training, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and that is something, and, and, I, and you get glimpses, you think it's working, you're seeing progress in the gym, you have these other metrics, but ultimately I did not know for sure that I had improved those muscle groups until I was six weeks out from my first show, you know? And I was hitting my, and I was doing my check-in videos with Berto, and I was like, oh, shit, like, my front lat spread, I kid you not, Dave, was probably my second worst shot for every other season I've had. And I would say right now, it's it's my second best front shot after my most muscular. Hmm. And it's maybe my third best shot overall, or fourth best after my, like, because I, I have pretty good side shots and shit like that. Yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah. Like I'm when I get my medal now, a front lat spread is something that I will hit because that's going to be the one commemorated. You know, you yeah. don't do a back shot because then people like they're like, I can't see you. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's a funny thing with people who get shredded the first time they have striated glutes, they get their medal and they want to turn around <laughs> and the promoter's like, no, 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 no. Like, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, so you kind of have to do a side or front shot. And yeah. for most of my medals, like I'm thinking, eh, let's go front lat spread. So that is turning what was a literal weakness for me. Like you can't find me hitting the front lat spread in 07 or 09. There's no pictures, you know, um, because mm -hmm. like I look bad. Yeah. So, you said your most muscular was your best front shot? I think so now. Yeah. And what what's your worst? Front double bicep. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. It's not bad though. Like it's improved. Yeah, um, yeah. But a lot of, I think just the way my back and my lats attach, a lot of the back improvements I made, they're much more visible in my back relaxed and my back lat spread. Those are also shots that substantially improved. Yeah. So my front relaxed, it, if, if you improve your front lat spread, your front relaxed improves. So like my front lat yeah, spread, yeah. my front relaxed, my back relaxed, and my back lat spread are the shots that improve the most. And the issue for me has always been that I have a relatively narrow frame compared to uh, more quintessential structures for bodybuilding. Mm. So trying to get my waist to look even smaller, to have more of an X frame uh, has been a, you know, a 19 year process. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it finally paid off. And all of a sudden now I'm beating people. I didn't think were in my reach. And I, I have a look that is 
I think to someone who's who's less analytical and less familiar with bodybuilding, um, they just it's it's kind of this overall just a better look. Like you look more like a bodybuilder. Like I have people commenting that I have a small waist. I've never had that before. And I don't not have a small waist, but I have narrow shoulders. So my waist doesn't look small relative to what you gauge mm. it, right? That's interesting. I never would have pegged you as somebody with narrow shoulders. Um, maybe just you, you filled it out. Do you know, and this is very much a me question. Do you know uh, what your waistline measures when you get pretty lean? No. Okay. Because uh, I do have ISAC protocols that I, I, I could look at, but it's not something, um, it's it's not a, it's, it's a visual thing. So I tend right. to put, I, I forget these numbers because they, here, here's a really interesting thing. So I actually think that the eye, when looking of, of a bodybuilding judge or bodybuilders, while it is subjective, it can pick up on smaller changes than we can get from tape measures and um, maybe, maybe not calipers. And this is just from doing a lot of research on stage lean physiques. Mm-hmm. Um and like a lot of the research I've done with my uh, soon to be graduated master's student, Kai Homer, we did a bunch of case case series and he's doing more on actual peaking bodybuilders. And we can see the visual differences that we would, most people would agree like, oh, here's the carb loaded, here's the not carb loaded, but it's not necessarily reflected in the skin folds or muscle thickness. Mm. And, you know, I remember you and you were like, hey, when you do this calf thing, make sure you do a measurement, you know? And I'm like... I will. This for me. <laughs> but um, but I think the ultrasound is more sensitive and doesn't mean yeah. anything to people. But at the same time, it's one of those things where the ultrasound is more sensitive. It probably has a, a smaller technical error. It can measure, you know, millimeters of change while the calf is measuring the whole circumference. But uh, you know, the question is, is what what will result in a visual change? And sure. I think we don't have data on that. And I'm actually really curious. That's something I want to do moving forward is what is there like the relationship between judges perception or bodybuilders perception of physique changes and various indices of anthropometry? And I think it would probably surprise people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I like the measurements only in the sense that again, because I've taken my own so many times, I find it's very reliable. I mean, I literally still have the same tape measure from when I started whatever, 18 years ago. Like I just, I'm like, don't throw that out. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, but how do you know, how do you know it hasn't deformed a little bit? It totally could, but I imagine it's such a slow deformation. I, I was just thinking about the other day, like I'm going to get a new <laughs> tape measure and everything is going to be different. I'm just going to, I should actually add with like different scales too. I'll get a new one. Yeah. It's like 1.2 pounds off. And I'm just like, well, great. This is just a new weight now. Um, but, but it's, it's accessible to everybody essentially. Yes. And it's, fairly meaningful in the sense that like, look, if you had 14 inch arms and now you've got 15 and a half inch arms, like it, like something's happened there. Right. Um, yes. But to your point, I mean, obviously like body fat's going to be a big factor with measurements, right? A huge factor. And so like an ultrasound, you can actually, you know, distinguish there. And I think some people who have seen some of my other videos might think, oh, I'm against pictures. And it's not that I'm against pictures at all. It's just that it is so hard. I mean, even for, with me taking pictures of myself, just the camera differences throughout the years has made a dramatic difference. I mean, literally, I just I I posted this mm-hmm. once. My my iPhone went from a 7S to a 12 Pro. And just the lighting differences it made, I was like, this is almost a different physique. Um, what you got there? <laughs> it's just a, like it's you're 100% right. Um, like I... I did a uh, a video vlog on the 3DMJ YouTube channel uh, where I put show footage up 
each one of the show footage was from a different camera um, and the lighting was different and the angles were different. And I, I know for sure, based upon because the two of the shows had the same judging panel or m- most of the same, and they gave me feedback. I was looking at myself doing these check-in videos in the same lighting because I actually brought my light with me and things like that and saw myself on stage, looked in the mirror. I know that I improved my look from the three shows back to back to back. Oh, four mm-hmm. shows that I did back to back to back one week off that. But the funny thing is, is when I uploaded my video, the angle, the lighting, and the camera use and the distance from us, I probably looked best in the first show. And I even, like I even said, as I was like talking over the video, I was like, now you're going to have to tr- take my word for it, you know, because it's just the way that that goes. Um, another example for if, for those who are following the natural bodybuilding scene, um, if you looked at p- pictures of people that, who can just compete at the recent Mr. America, really, really big show. Uh, the guy who won, I want to say his name is Robert Johnson, the overall bodybuilding, he is insanely shredded. Like there's this, a picture of him on his profile where he actually has cross-striated rectus femoris. I'd never even seen that before. And the feedback from everyone there, Nick Licamelli was on the judging panel. I was mm-hmm. talking to him. He's like, dude, that's the leanest guy I've ever seen in person. I was like, yeah. But if you look at the the pictures from the show and the show stage footage, the lighting makes them all look eh. Really? Like you just can't, you can't tell. You know, so it's it's the type of thing where you really have to be there and and to get an accurate view of what's going on. And then probably more importantly, because most people are not going to be there, is just how much the difference in camera or video footage or lighting can make. Similar thing with the recent show in WBF Canada. Everybody looked soft. If you look at all the pictures and footage online, just because it was like down lighting and just the way it looks. So, and that's not necessarily what the audience or the judges experienced, you know, it's just, it so is what, what it is. So what do you, you do? Because like, I agree with everything you say. And, and again, this is really just for the, the competitors, but you know, you, you talk about these like small changes, but if you have a different camera than three years ago or a different phone and you moved, right. So you're looking at a different mirror and then one show has a different, you know, like to some degree, it's like, I believe you, Eric, that you can assess your own physique and see you know, okay, there's these grams, but I just think it, it's so difficult. It's almost just like, I don't, I don't have an answer. There's a lot of reasons you could look to somebody for advice. My, I guess, warning to some people is that if somebody is going to say X routine is better or X methodology is better, there should be something backing it up. And if it's just, well, I've seen these results, then I want something to show me that you've seen results. And if the only thing showing me is, well, Hey, trust me, it, it becomes very difficult. I agree. And I, I, I do think it's um, some of the voices in our space right now who are like, you know, they don't compete. One thing I, I, I do chuckle about is, um, you know, they're, they're chilling in their dungeon on their own, training by themselves, manipulating, and, and they present everything the way they get to. And uh, everyone's like, man, you're so much bigger than all these other guys. I'm like, yeah, are they though? Like, put, put them on stage lean and I, you'd be surprised. Oh, you yeah. Know? People were shocked when Matt Ogus was not God's gift to natural bodybuilding when he actually competed. And this is nothing he wouldn't say. He's very, very good. Um, but when he got into overalls, everyone's like, the other guys must be fake natties because, I mean, you can't beat Matt Ogus. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and, like by himself, and like any, any good natural bodybuilder looks amazing. And the same thing I think is happening now, but even even like more so, you know. Um, and 
I can tell you this from coaching and being a, like, we have like 300 clients, you know, that's not, that's an exaggeration, like 150 clients in any given time in 3D muscle journey. Most of our clients are themselves in the fitness industry, right? Hmm. So they themselves are marketing themselves and there are, so they might have an Instagram with a large number of following where they're using their physique to sell themselves, their coaching products, things like that, even when done well. A very, very common thing is to present your physique in its best light. Sure. So it's a really funny thing when you get a check-in from a client and you've asked them to do it in a certain way. Give me a black backdrop. Give me either head-on natural lighting or get me a ring light, put it this distance, and I want you to do it the same time of day. Like do it first thing in the morning uh, or you know, actually probably like you know, wake up, weigh yourself nude after you use the toilet. And then I want you to have 500 milliliters of water, you know, go about your, your morning routine and then give me a video of yourself hydrated, but before you've eaten anything on Saturday, you know, and I know that that was after two low days or whatever, black backdrop, same lighting, straight on, very harsh lighting, not favorable, but an excellent way to homogenize every picture you have. And I can assess how you look. You would never want to put that out online unless you're oh, sure. actually, we've done it. We've done it to demonstrate here's how you do it. And yeah, like actually with my video series, I had a few of my vlogs where I'm, uh, and that's not exactly the same. I have like a, a white backdrop and I have natural light coming through the same time of day each time. And I've compared it to other lighting or stage show photos. And people are like, that's an insane difference. I was like, yeah, it's the same day. It's five minutes later. I walk downstairs, you know? So if you know that, and then you're using it for the purposes not to, display yourself in a really good way, but to give an accurate view, the contrast is amazing. So I'm not going to name names, but some of our clients who I literally, you know, got to stand next to and be with, I was like looking at them on Instagram and I'm scouting them. I'm like, oh man, this person's going to give me trouble. And Jeff's like, I don't think they will. And I'm like, oh, you know something I don't. And he's like, yeah, I mean, people use filters and they use edits. Like he's like talking around and I'm like, so like, you can scout out some people and they look like they're going to come into the show and steamroll everybody. And then when you see them in person, they look worse. Yeah, sure. However, the people who maybe are not have much of a presence and they're just doing that, like, like you're checking with your clients and then you coach them in person. You're like, Oh, you look way better, mm -hmm. you know? So a common thing you used to see in the early days of social media with like Facebook pictures or like body space is you'd see them in person, you'd be like, man, that blows me away. And the common thing now is the exact opposite. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. People's structures um, turn way up. Yeah. 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 I mean, you even see that in the pros, like, uh, you know, now that pretty much everybody, because, you know, go back 20 years and it was almost a thing, like in the, like, the days of like Lavronian and all that, nobody really knew what you'd look like. And then you show up, right? Whereas now it's like, oh, this guy, he's going to be Mr. Olympia. This guy's going to be Mr. Olympia. And not that they don't look amazing, you know, relative to what they're doing, but it, it, it is very different on stage. Yeah. So going back to your point, a lot of the people who are very good at positioning themselves as an authority and will sell you a program and have made solid gains and probably even have some decent information. But if they're saying this is better because of the results I have, A, they're assuming that everyone else is going to respond the same way as them, which is a terrible assumption and largely incorrect in most cases. But B, are their results that good? You know, when they have that much agency over how they look and can change things and manipulate it, and yeah. it's really just them, and they're not putting themselves in a position where they have to be. That's something I like about that. Again, that's part of why I like getting on stage because the truth will come out, you know, like 
when I get the pro shots and when I have, you know, like all the footage that I take backstage and all that, and I can collectively look at like three different cameras because everyone's taking pictures of you and three different distances and videos. Yeah. Um, then you can be like, okay, did I improve? You know. So just to clarify, so you're saying that even though the cameras and the light and everything between shows can be substantially different, you're either using like a personal camera or something is standardized enough that you feel you can look at one show to the next and actually define the changes. You know, so this is a concept from exercise science. Um, you verbally motivate them. Uh, you make sure that you give them enough rest and you take the best of three trials because you're trying to hit the peak threshold of what they can be capable of. And then you use that mm-hmm. rather than the average. Sometimes you use the average, but a lot of times in exercise science, you're going to use your highest jump, mm-hmm. right? Highest peak force, right? right. Um, greatest wattage, right? Um, a well done show in a, in an organization that has promoters who know what they're doing and it's decently standardized. Like if you look at like the WNBF, most shows, or if you look at the IFBB or NPC, most shows that have especially been around for a while, it is so important for that promoter to make you look good on stage. And when they don't, it's something they're actively working on and trying to fix because people will buy the stage shots and they're like, I don't want to do that show again. Like I, that, like your pictures are your commemoration of what you did. So the pro shots that I got from, let's say the Battle of the Bay and the Washington, which were back to back, were the same company that did the pro shots who manipulated the lighting with the same judging panel and all these promoters who know each other extremely comparable and you can see the subtle differences and the pro shots in my very first show and my last show like when you compare pro shots when the professionals are taking and editing the pictures not like manipulating editing them but just editing which ones look best and i'm going to send those out to the competitor yeah it's in their best interest and it's in the promoter's best interest to make you look as good as possible right so i think that to some degree can be very helpful but I mean, there are still are some differences. Um, but if you look at the best shots from the pro shots at your show, mm. and you compare that to the best shots of the pro shots from a previous show, um, at least if you're in the same era, like I'm not going to go back and look at my 09 or 2011. Yeah, or yeah, sure. That is one of the tools you have to to compare. Like, all right, what was like the onstage experience like? Right, right, right. Cool, cool. And just for people, um, for reference, when you were in the off season, you know, because you're talking about being, you know, maybe sub 180s in the off season. Would you get up to like 220 even or more like 210? I My off seasons have gotten progressively lighter over time. Okay. Um, so as I've been more aware that I don't benefit from getting that heavy and also just probably honestly better at uh, having a more conducive, you know, more measured approach to bulking. And as I've, you know, had less of a as my, my ceiling gets closer it doesn't really make any sense to way overshoot it yeah yeah so the heaviest i've ever gotten in off season i wouldn't even call it an off season it's like the post contest rebound was my first season i got to 226 oh wow, okay heavy heaviest i got in 2010 after my 09 season was 220 um but each year i've started like five pounds lighter this time i started at 96 kilos what is that like i got reasonably heavy um I want to say that's like 212. I don't actually have my my math brain. It's a bit less, but yeah. Yeah, it's like 211.6. So yeah. Um, this was heavier than last year where I started prep at just under 200 pounds. Um, and I dieted shorter. So I had yeah, like yeah, a yeah. more of a, I did like a prep positioning last time and then maintained and then started my diet. This time I just basically went straight from off season in, which is also why I 
aimed for the latter half of the season because I was like, well, I want to get all the way to Worlds, so I'm not going to do any shows in like April like I did in 2019. The first show will be end of September, and I'll start beginning of February. Um, so yeah, heaviest I get in the offseason um, is, I mean, that that is it right there. Yeah. It's yeah. like 210. 210. Okay. And I don't think I'll be doing that again. I uh, actually have been, I was really pleasantly surprised with, oh, another thing I forgot this year, just how busy it was. June, I did a powerlifting meet. Nice. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I did that in 83 kilo category and I felt really good. And I'd actually improved my squat and my deadlift from the start of prep. So nice. it made me realize I can perform, I can train, I feel fine. Um, everything else physiologically was working great when I was around uh, like 83, 84. So I'm planning on staying a lot tighter in my off seasons from here and seeing if I can make progress without having to push over, say like 190. Yeah. Okay. Nice, man. Um, so you, you talked about bringing up the delts, the lats and the calves. So our favorite topic is the calves. And I feel like this has been a, a long time coming. We, you know, when the study started and we were discussing it and then you went through it and then, you know, I was trying to get you to spill the results to me. So do we have a final result on that study? Has that been released yet or what's going on? It just hasn't been published. And this really comes down to, uh, Kai, uh, the guy who I mentioned earlier, who's doing yeah, the yeah. peaking masters. I told him, listen, don't prioritize this silly case study on my calves, finish your masters. <laughs> so he is, uh, is, is the, like the lead author on it. Cause it's something that, you know, it's, it's getting him experience doing research and all that. So it's something that I will probably prod him, but I'm giving him a little bit of recovery because he just submitted his master's for examination. He really emptied the tank. He did a lot of hard work. It's a fantastic master's, but I think it's it's ready to to get put so together. The listener should DM Kai and tell him to hurry up with the publisher. Yes, Kai Homer. Look for him, find him, you know, harass him. He deserves it. Um, he's, a, he's, he's a bad person because he hasn't published this yet. But um, no, in all seriousness... The, the results are pretty straightforward is it worked and we did see um, modest changes in my calf size from putting six day per week, hour long orthotic based stretching to the, you know, nine out of 10, you know, pain tolerance that I could for 12 weeks. Um, and uh, not necessarily in all measures, but, but, but overall you can nice. see that pretty clearly. I also increased my isometric calf strength. And I also increased, which is kind of neat. And I also increased my range of motion, the needle wall test pretty substantially. Yeah. Um, which changed the way my leg press went, which, yeah, you yeah. know, like, yeah, I can even touch the floor on RDLs. And did your weight change? Cause this was this while you were dieting? No, we completed all this before I started the diet. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know we're joking about it a little bit before, but did you take before and after measurements? Uh, yes. And they were, and the thing is, is that there is measurement error on those and the amount of change, it looks positive, but it's like, I'm not sure if that measurement change and the timing of when I stopped with the swelling. So we didn't mm -hmm. include, we're not going to include that data because it's, it's not quite as reliable. Okay. Um, we have a smaller, um, we have more precision, I'll say on the ultrasound than we do on the, on the measurements. But you thought there was some measurable difference as far as you can tell like slight or yes yeah okay. um 
Yeah, because the last time we we spoke, I had actually told you how I, after three years of my experiment, I might like just be seeing a slight difference. And and I think what was happening, well, so I, I've been doing like the intense calf stretches back since probably 08, 09 with like DC training and whatnot. And one of my frustrations with calf stretches is whether it's a leg press or on the stairs, there's it, it always that slippage that's going on, yeah. right? And it's, you're having to reset. It's just very annoying. Depends on the shoes and whatnot. And for whatever reason, I had not really done something that I had just started doing this year, which was I would basically allow myself to eventually slip down the stairs, but then hold that position and just push against it and then lean forward. And that led to a crazy stretch. Um, And I was thinking like, maybe that was, you know, finally, and I mean, I'm talking a small difference here, but like a quarter of an inch, maybe an eighth of an inch. Um, And I was like, okay, so that's something. Unfortunately, I then pretty soon after that started to get some, what I believe to be was Achilles tendonitis. And um, to the point that I was like, I actually stopped training calves entirely. And it took close to two to three months for that to go away where like I was, if I was just walking, I could feel it. I was like, this, this is a problem. So it's like, you probably actually got a minor tear in your tendon, dude. That's amazing. Maybe. Yeah. So, um, so I have since stopped and it's been three and a half months. And now, ironically, my left, which is the one that hasn't been trained in three years, is now an eighth of an inch bigger than the right. So so that was the conclusion. Um, but it, it was cool to see maybe something with like, and again, I have done a lot of intense stretching over my training career, but mm-hmm. this was kind of like the next level of it. Um, but ultimately, bet- between that and also potentially uh, like supposed orthopedic issues that could happen from unilateral training and not like, you know, making it up on the other side. I've decided to cut that experiment after three years, but, uh, but it was a fun, fun journey. I love that you do that. And I think it's awesome. And I think a lot of people out of fear are not willing to do this type of experiments because of the, the, the supposed opportunity cost sunk cost of it. But I think a lot of people just end up spinning their wheels for a long time without trying those things. So I've always been a big proponent for, experimentation like that and sometimes it's taken me injury to be in a position to where i could do that to yeah, figure yeah. out like my volume threshold in my lower body or yep. um or a literal experiment like we did you know like to to to, to create the environment for it and to get my my motivation and fear headspace in the right spot but yeah i the orthotic device stretching was um incredibly painful uh i've had a multiple people message me like dude i tried this how did you do it for an hour and i don't have a good answer to them it's like I literally just willpowered my way through it. Like it sucks. Did like, it like get 15... easier over time or not really? Not even, not within the session, but just, you know. No, unfortunately, because you like the, the goal is to hit a subjective out of yeah, 10 yeah, pain yeah. thing. So it's like, just with, like with progressive resistance training, like, oh, so you just use the 20s now and they're easy. Like, no, now I use the 40s and it's just it's hard. Right, 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 right. Yes, you know? yeah. So it got to the point where I, so the, the one I had that I got on Amazon, it was a Velcro, right? And, um, Initially, that was fine, and I had all this overlap, and eventually, like only half the Velcro's on there, and it's like barely holding me in. So I had to—I was taking push pins, and I was pushing it through the the portion that was uh, like s- smooth plastic on 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 the on the Velcro because it's not actually adhering. And I eventually got it to the point because of how much my range of motion increased, where it was just smooth on smooth, and I had like fifteen push pins in it. It looked like Frankenstein <laughs> because. And and I had to like really, and I had like paper clips. It looks stupid. I had paper clips and push pins 
because as I'm getting deeper and deeper into the stretch, the amount of tension that my, my foot's giving back is higher and higher and higher. And I'm having less and less of the, of the Velcro working. Yeah. Um, so the, the level of pain was sustained at like eight yeah. or nine out of 10 for the entire 12 weeks. And I would literally have my, I'd start getting pins and needles 10 to 15 minutes in, man. I remember you saying and, that. And then it would go away for a second. Then it would come back and be like painful. It's like, all right, sick. I only have to do this for another 40 minutes. And you so only bought go, one, right? So you had to go. Correct. <laughs> so then you choice. know, you know, you're going to be in pain. You're like, switch the legs. Let's do it again. You know, That's like the crappiness of Bulgarian split squats about you finish this dreadful set and you got to do the others, except you did it for an hour. God. Yep. Now. I will say I'm not doing it anymore and I won't be doing it anymore because the juice okay. was not worth the squeeze. Mm. And maybe that's because of the way I did it. And I've now traumatized myself. So, you know, on one hand, I really think I'm the hardest worker in the room, but then again, I'm like, yeah, fuck that. You know, yeah, so it, it might've been a poor decision. Maybe I should have done it like a six out of 10 and gotten the easy gains and done it for eight weeks. Then take four weeks off. Well, we um, talked a little bit before about how, and this, you know, kind of is underscored a little bit by the the data on the men versus women. It might be that you have kind of unlocked this stretching gain, and then that's what there is left, right? And then you've kind of maxed that out potentially. My hypothesis is, and I could be wrong, that yeah, you you get you get you get a time here where you can increase your flexibility pretty substantially, and then once you're no longer increasing your flexibility, you're getting probably limited benefit out of it from a hypertrophy standpoint. And then if you can, and this is it's something you can actually test, you can check your needle wall, you know, your, your flexibility and you're like, get your goniometer out or do the little rubber band and get the, the tape measure out. Uh, and this is a time I'd recommend measuring. If you can, through other methods that don't require you to have an orthotic device on, maintain the vast majority of that range, and you're still regularly applying tension, like training your calves, then you're probably keeping most of that of those gains yeah. and potentially maybe even building on top of them. And that's kind of the tact I've taken. I will occasionally just do regular old static stretching. I actually do like the stair stretch, same thing as you, or just anything when I'm in the gym, sometimes I implement at the end of my training, I'll be like, all right, I'm just going to do 10 minutes of static stretching per calf. I don't do it that frequently. And I probably should actually build it in a little more of a regimented way. Um, and then I also, when I train my calves, I do length and partials and I pause at the bottom of each rep for probably a two count. Uh, and then at the end of the set, I hold it as long as I can tolerate it, which is not that long when you've just done yeah. like 10 reps to failure on calves, but we're talking like 10 seconds, you know? Mm. Um, so, and that I have no, like I'm still touching the ground on RDLs. I can still, you know, like put my knees in my chest on a low foot position, leg press. Um, I, I have not formally measured my range of motion. I probably should, but, and, and my calves still look good and I've seen them like, so, so I think I'm, if I'm not maintaining all of the gains I got from that stretching protocol, definitely the majority of them. That's great. So recently a, a another mass issue had come out and there's, you know, various topics and I might've said this to you before, but I can always tell who wrote it based on just the title of it. Like, all right, this is very mm. clearly like a Zordos article versus a Trexler. Um, and I skipped one this past week because I knew you were coming on. So I was like, well, let's just discuss the idea of it, which was peak week. And, mm. you know, people I, I know for years, it's been said there was a lot of misconceptions and stuff that had came over from professional 
bodybuilding. So I actually don't know your current stance on it on, you know, I know for mm -hmm. a long time, it was discussed like, Hey, you don't need to do any manipulation. Don't manipulate sodium. Don't manipulate water. Um, are you guys still kind of in that camp or where are you at now? No, I, I think I've evolved beyond that. I think that was almost a reactionary position to people doing things that were typically harming them, um, either performance wise or literally health. And, uh, you know, I, I was almost just more of an advocate of repeating the things that Elaine Norton was saying early on. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not holding water, you're holding fat, you need to get leaner. And, you know, doing all these things, at least in naturals, is more likely just to make you look flat. Um, and I think that is true, but it almost discounted how much of a benefit you can get out of being fully carb loaded and then not having any uh, carb, carb uh, related water retention which is relatively minor compared to what maybe someone who is running a boat ton of, you know, androgenic compounds, DNP and using diuretics to get rid of it is dealing with. Right. But it does make a, a visual difference. Um, and anyone will tell you like spilling over is a thing. And um, what I would describe as a load look is a thing like the process of carbohydrate loading, not for everyone, but for most people is you are looking bigger and worse and then, you know, overnight it cleans up, you know, kind of your, you get back to your normal water compartment homeostasis and then you're still carb loaded and you kind of have the combination of uh, definition and fullness. And I used to say like, uh, you just don't want to mess things up. You want to look just as good as you did during your diet. Um, but I think with how flat you can get when you've been dieting hard, like Dude, the way my physique looks on five low days between 1,400 to 1,700 calories, when I'm really, really lean, my body is trying to hold on to fat. So it's like, no, I'm, you can use all this glycogen first. And, you know, taking in, you know, 12 to 15,000 steps per day, like I look substantially smaller and much more like of like a swimmer. And then if you look at my stage shots, you're like, oh, you look, you look big. Like I wouldn't have expected that. And I could show someone that just the fullness difference, I think, is is, is quite dramatic from most depleted to to peaked. Um, and it's probably more along the lines of like a 10 percent improvement in someone's physique, even wow. in natural bodybuilding. Really? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I probably could demonstrate that if I just showed you, I mean, not not on a podcast format, but like Dave, like if, if you remind me, I will send you. A picture or a video of me like my most depleted versus stage shot and obviously yeah. that's compounded by all the lighting stuff we already talked about i won't rehash it but i think even with those differences you'd be like god damn you know like that's that's notably different you know so how do you feel like i mean not just in terms of uh hunger and depletion i mean talking to you like i would never expect that you were you know in the middle of so many different competitions now like i, I know that's been an evolution over the years of handling it but um not only how do you feel physically, but even just psychologically, like obviously it, it is hard. I mean, I know for me, it's one of the hardest things about dieting is to feel smaller, to work so hard. And, and you know, by your own, you know, comments earlier, you're the same weight as after three years of lifting, right? So is it still hard for you at all psychologically to walk around and say like, hey, I've got to, you know, maybe cover up or, or anything, or you just don't even care about that anymore? I think the... Um the way you look in clothes that are not tight is, is psychologically hard to deal with. Um, and I actually have almost two different wardrobes. 
uh, mm-hmm. for when I'm in shape and when I'm when I when I'm not because literally things do not fit. It looks comical either way. Like I have my my shorts synced up to the point where like they're bunched up and look crazy if they're off season shorts, or the clothes will just literally not fit my body in the off season. Mm-hmm. So. Like, for example, I get up in the morning and we take a walk and we grab some breakfast and I'll just throw on a baggy shirt and some some pants. And I think people at this stage, especially if they've seen me previously, think I'm ill because of just how much I lose in my face and how much yeah. my, my like like every reel I put up right now on Instagram. It doesn't matter what the f- I'm talking about, Dave, <laughs> like the first comment is like death march face or yeah, something yeah. like that, you know? Um, and I'm like, oh, they're going to love this. This is a really cool study that goes into protein metabolism. Like, yo, Eric, your face. And I'm like, Fuck. you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like I'm distracting people from the education I'm trying to provide them. Right. So getting into, um, and there's a big difference even between when, like when I was 83, you know, and probably around eight or 9% body fat. And now where I'm, whatever I am now, uh, but walking around three, four kilos lighter, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that level of leanness is something that you just don't see on a regular basis. Or when you do, it's someone who is typically almost always like that. It's like your really low natural body fat set point endurance athlete who, you know, like cycles into the office and he just always has like the shredded cheekbones and he's skinny, you know, it's not a really muscular guy. And most muscular people, 99.9% of them only look like that for a brief phase. Yeah. They bulk back up. Right. So, and you know, I only compete every four years. It'll probably be a little more frequent now that I'm going to be much more invested in bodybuilding as a pro, but it's still going to be, you know, a, a quarter of the time at most. And, yeah. and that's not true. It's a quarter of the time dieting. And then only like the last third of the time spent in the diet where you look like that. So it's, it's quite dramatic. Um, and it's the kind of thing where if it's, if I put on a stringer and I go to the gym, I look amazing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's, like, you know, I'm in good lighting and all that. Like I do look a little, like if it's on multiple low days, I would look a little stringy or a little sick in the face and maybe not the ideal way you'd want to look. But um, it is such a, a dramatic difference to when you were just walking around wearing baggy clothes. Um, and I think seeing that contrast, it makes you invest a little bit less in both, to be honest, you know? Yeah, right. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the stage weight, the weight is something I get over because you kind of flip a switch um, at least I do. There are maybe some bodybuilders who don't have to get as lean as I do and be successful because of the way they carry body fat and just they're just much more genetically gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the difference between me, because this is a, a, a minor point, like a panel decision on assessing pro quality was the difference between me getting a pro card and not getting a pro card this season. At the WBF New Zealand, I actually won the show. I won the bodybuilding overall, and they could have awarded the pro card, but they assessed that because the show was too small, I needed to be at pro caliber standards, and I wasn't yet in peak condition. So they said, you know, we're, we're erring on the side of conservatism. We're not going to give you one. No way. And really? then, yeah. So I, I didn't meet the pro standard in the first show that I did. And uh, this is something that's not common, and it doesn't stay. It's something that New Zealand is doing or has done for the first two years. We did it last year as well um, because the shows are small. And as the federation grows, like you actually want pro representation at the international level. Mm-hmm. But locally, the typical, like the, the stock standard rule is that there's eight in the bodybuilding division. There's one pro card up for grabs, right? 
And if it's a super pro qualifier, then if you have eight in the division, you can do it by winning a division. And then if you win the overall and you're not that division, then there's two pro cards, et cetera. And it does differ a little bit country by country. And there's some uh, lenience in that, but it's some variation on that in, in, in the WMBF. Now the Australia show, it's bigger, but it's the first year. And they had a, they, they went into it and they announced the rules. So it's nothing, it's not completely subjective, but it is, here are the rules. And the rules for New Zealand were, if there's less than eight, a panel will decide whether you've reached pro quality. And the rules for Australia were same thing, but if there's more than eight, then we can give a second pro card out if there's two people that the panel decide, or a second person that the panel decides is also pro worthy. Mm. And that's how I got my pro card at the Australia show. Um, I won my class, I lost the overall, and then they compared me to the person who got second to the overall winner, because we hadn't been compared, we were in two different classes, to figure out, okay, who was the best, the second best bodybuilder in the show, because we have more than eight, uh, okay. and we're going to decide to award a, a pro card. So I was in the same position twice, but the second time, and all I had done was lost maybe a kilo and a half more of body fat, wow. I was pro-worthy versus not. So that's the kind of thing where my physique is not your stock standard huge muscle bellies looks great looks great at eight percent body fat looks even better at seven but it looks amazing either way if i'm not peeled i'm i'm according to the the wbf currently i'm not pro standard you know so for me to leverage uh my competitiveness i have to bring elite levels of conditioning um and so so that that's kind of the way that works and I don't get the luxury of not looking like a uh, like someone who's under palliative care towards the end of my diet because yeah, of that. Yeah. So anyway, so to answer your question, that means that I focus very much on I got to get peeled, and there are downsides to that. Like um, I collaborate with Berto; he's my coach, and he, you know, he told me and like because we work together, and he helps me better understand myself so I can make better decisions. You know, when you're coaching a high level athlete, I'm not to say that I'm really really competitive, but I'm experienced. You want them to be able to leverage their experience, their intuition, and the changing situation on the ground to auto-regulate and come to the best possible outcome. So instead of saying, here's your number of grams of fat, carbs, and protein to the five-gram mark, and here's your exact number of steps, you do something like, here's the outcome I want. I want you to lose this much weight over the next couple of weeks. Okay, now we're not focused on that. I want you to look like this. I want you to feel like this. Here's the outcome we're trying to get to, and here's the strategy and the game plan. We want to get to really good condition, but not peeled in September because I'm worried that you won't make it to November with how lean you're going to be for how long. Okay, cool. Got it. And let's give a range of 1,400 to 1,700 calories. And if you're feeling really lethargic and you shouldn't be, and it's early in the week and you've still got four more low days, you should bump it up to 1,700. So like that level of um, autonomy that you provide to the client with some guidance and understanding why so they can leverage their own experience is quite important. And all that is to say that Berto said to me one time, you know what, your, your default setting, uh, probably because of everything we've talked about, is you push too hard. Like if you're left to your own devices, you're, if you here's the median of the competitor who is, you know, gets it perfect, and then over here is the competitor starts to feel small and then takes a high day when they shouldn't and won't let themselves get flat and really, really focus on their size and wants to cover up and maybe has a little bit of dysmorphia, if anything, you're a little more like the anorexic side. Like, mm -hmm. you know what? I'll do 1,400 calories. I could be leaner. Being flat's part of the process. So I think because I know that I'm just, I'm not competitive unless I'm diced. 
I will err on the side of probably pushing too hard. And that's a really big reason why Berto is important. But it also means that when I flip the switch, I don't really worry about looking small. Mm. And when people tell me I look small, I translate that to I'm getting diced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always and I shouldn't always do that. I'm not saying that's the way to do it. And there is a cost to that because I struggle a little more than the average competitor historically I have with coming out of being shredded. And when I start to look less shredded, I mean everybody does, don't get me wrong. The You mean psychologically? Yes. Putting body fat back on. No, I have no problem putting the body fat back on like physically, but seeing the body fat come back on when I feel like, oh, this is my pro physique and I need to be shredded to look like a pro, you know, then it's like, oh man, am I I don't look like a pro. But I, I, I don't I don't anticipate that being a problem because this is not my first rodeo. This is the fifth time I've done it. And that's kind of answer to that question. The answer to your bigger question about how do I feel remarkably good. Mm. And each season I've competed, I feel better and better and better. And a huge part about being successful as a career bodybuilder, especially someone who gets shredded is understanding that it is not a willpower battle all the time, that it is a give and take. And that to push yourself to elite levels of conditioning requires a reserve of energy. And that you're also at most risk when you're trying to get to the highest levels of conditioning. And, you know, when you're trying to keep those 80 grams of delts that you got on, you need to be careful. So you don't go hard without refeeds for too long. You don't let yourself completely flatten out for too long. You don't try to get shredded just by putting the pedal to the metal and then feeling like a zombie for seven days straight. You might do it for two or three days, but you should know what it feels like to be doing too much for too long. You should think about how many days of only being able to get four hours of sleep is too much before the the, the juice is not worth the squeeze. And what timeline can you operate like that for how long? And I think so many bodybuilders, and I can tell you this as a coach, they will say things like, I'll do anything. I'll do whatever it takes. And that's fine. I'm glad they have that. But what I really want from a competitor is one who actually knows their limits, who says everyone, it's like torture, right? You know, not that anyone knows this is true, but if you watch all the TV shows, like everyone breaks eventually, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> like, you know, it's the, the green beret main character and like, you got to go save him or it's 24 and it's, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keith for Sutherland, like, tell me the code now, you know, whatever. So, and I think that's actually true when it comes to contest prep is even the most hardcore of hardcore badass competitors, your Kurt Widener's of the, of the world, for those who know who I'm talking about, most people won't. Um, there is a, they, they have a limit too. And you need to know where your limit is and you need to know that you probably shouldn't hit it or you shouldn't be at it for too long because there will be a cost either physically or psychologically, either now or in the off season. Uh, it may push you away from competing again. It may mean that you are just so deathly afraid of, of, of having to do certain things that it gets in the way. Or it might just mean that you lose a bunch of muscle and you don't actually look better, even though you got leaner. So um, that is really what it takes. So managing fatigue is actually the most important thing in contest prep when it comes to getting in condition, not just figuring out the right macros or digging or or like once you get the X's and O's figured out, like you need to diet long enough, you know what your calories need to be to be in the fat loss phase. You know how much your body adapts, you know how many steps you need to do and the balance between them. Then it's just a matter of, okay, what dose of 
of suck do we need to have? Yeah. Because you have to get to the end. And then also ideally you want to eat up. Ideally, we need you to not to lose too much muscle mass. So I have had stints where I'm at a lethargic place, but they've been short-lived. And I'd say the overall difficulty of this prep, Dave, and I'm not kidding, out of 10, it's probably a three. Wow. And I would say just to put that in in reference, my 09 season, the first time I got shredded, was probably a nine out of 10. I think, um, well, it's amazing that like the same process, I know it's not literally the same process, but the same, hey, I'm going to step on stage could vary so much. And uh, you had me smirking with the uh, the Green Beret example because I, I'm consistently amazed by how quickly one psychology can change in terms of their belief about being able to handle something compared to like when you even get a taste of it. So just like a very silly example, you know, I, I'm, you know, you watch like a movie and it's like uh, the day after tomorrow when it's like freezing and everything. And you're just like, well, I would just keep going. And then you get out and it doesn't have to be like freezing. It can just be kind of cold. And you're like, oh no, that would suck. Same thing with any cold water immersion, any kind of pain, you get some pain. You're like, nope, nope. I would give up the secrets in a minute. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it's tough to really feel what you would feel in that situation until you get a glimpse. Yeah. There's so many like armchair hardcore people, you yeah. know, and it's, it's like real people in real scenarios where it is painful or hard and it's just part and parcel of it. You, you realize that having an ego around that is, is generally counterproductive. You know, like the, I think when you get into the right mindset as a, as a, of athlete, as a bodybuilder, you're not concerned with showing off how hard you could push yourself. You're concerned with what do I need to do to get the best outcome? Whether that, re- if that requires me to kill myself, okay. If it requires me not to and to pull back, then I don't need to be like, oh, but I didn't, it didn't feel hard enough. But yeah, yeah, yeah. early That's on totally. as an amateur bodybuilder, it was totally like, uh, if it feels easy, I thought I was doing something wrong, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's and I didn't know how to calibrate. Message. I just thought it should be hard all the time. So yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's specific with competing, but even with lifting. I know when I my first coach ever, I had like saved up money and I, I paid in high school. And I, one thing I am proud of myself for is that even at a young age, I, I had the I had I guess good mentors, but I, I read good source material and I I kind of knew a lot for you know my early stage. And the coach was like, I know you're going to want to work out five or six days a week. I was like, no, man, like, I just want the results. If you tell me to work out two days a week, that's fine. Like, this is the goal. I will, I'm not going to, you know, if it's like, hey, you can work six days a week and make $100,000 salary, you can work three days a week. It's like, well, I'm not going to work more for the exact same outcome. So just get me (laughs) the outcome, you know? Yeah. And that is something, honestly, that is for not all, but many bodybuilders, especially if they didn't come from a athletic background, um, that is one of the stages of evolution. The, I'm going to say the typical amateur bodybuilder is really only has one speed, only has one gear and it's all in. And the cost of that is that they put blinders on to, to the times when they can't go all in because they need recovery from that. You know, it's the the prototypical, I gained 30 pounds post-show, but I'm convincing myself that I'm bulking hard when it's actually they are so restricted, hungry, fatigued that they can't stop themselves from binging, right? But they think, no, no, I'm just bulking. Like, I'm, I'm doing it right. You know, they, they manipulate themselves into maintaining the self-belief of the hardcore warrior. 
and ignoring all the ways that uh, they they can't sustain it, you know, um, instead of being aware of, of what happens when they reach their limits, push past it and how it hurts them. And, you know, there's, I, I'm very, like very proud of myself the few times where I've called uncle, you know, where I've said like, I think in 2019, Berto, I, I made, I made a call where I knew I had some time where I didn't have a lot of life demands mm-hmm. in May. And I said, Berto, in that the smart thing for us to do is to keep dieting into June and then start eating up. But I would like to lose, I'd like to get shredded in May, even though we're trying to peak for July and August. And I think we should just need, need to run low days until I'm shredded. And I'm, it's going to be extremely challenging, but I will tell you in my, my, my breaking limit. And then we can see where I'm at. And we ran like 11 or 14 low days in a row with, with one refeed. Like, like that whole month, I only had like maybe two refeeds and I was on mm. 1400 calories and yeah. double double day cardio and it mm. was brutal but i was prepared for it i knew my limits and i i would throw my hand up and be like hey man i i don't think i can do another two days mentally or there'll be a yeah. cost or or physically I'm, I'm just not it's harming my life like i can't sleep um and like and he would and he'd be like okay cool refeed you know yeah but i i couldn't do that early in my career i wouldn't have known how and i wouldn't have been able to make that decision and um it is when you only have one speed, you don't think about pacing, but pacing in every sport and every activity, it just in life is what you have to do. And the people who don't know how to pace typically don't get shredded unless they're just naturally lean. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did I tell you about the time I did the two weeks at a thousand calories? I don't think you did, or I've forgotten a bad friend. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> 2020. 2020 was actually my most successful diet to date. Mm. And, um, I, I, every time I talk about this, I say, I do not recommend it. Um, it, you know, it was just something, I just was kind of curious what would happen. And also just kind of wanted to speed things up a little bit. Um, and it was, I mean, it was about as crappy as you would expect it to be. I mean, it was, it was pretty terrible. Um, I don't, I don't know if I was so dieted at that point that I almost like, I was just numb to the hunger. But the main thing I noticed was like sleep was obviously horrible. Um, and I actually, and I, you know, I have records of everything and I, I actually gained weight. And, um, you know, which I'm sure most people would just be like, that's impossible. It's like, obviously I didn't gain fat. Right. But how how many bowel movements were you having? Probably zero. I mean, I probably over two weeks probably had like three, maybe, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but it was, it was kind of amazing that I, I gained weight and then I I believe, and I had to go look, but after I had eaten, then yes, you know, I, I netted like several pounds of, of, you know, weight loss there, but just the, the body's ability to adapt is pretty astounding, especially with, I, I, you know, I'm definitely prone to water retention. So it's pretty interesting to see. I'm the same way, you know, like if, uh, when I push those low days, you kind of have to ignore certain things because you, you flatten out, you have less bowel movements, you retain more water. Uh, you don't recover from your training as well. So the muscle damage hangs around and you have edema. Um, and as Berto would say, like, you just like get jumped in the alley, you know, like before the bruises have set in and you're just like, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, th- and then you also lose your objectivity and, and you, you think you look even worse than you do and you look bad, you know? So like that type of uh, dieting, you are burning the candle at both ends for sure. Yeah. yeah. And you do a more than a few weeks of that. And it's also the leaner you get when you do that, the the worse it feels. Sure, um, yeah. So, it, and, and those things co-vary. So like when I told him, like I competed in April when I did this in May. So I was already uh, very lean. I wasn't at my peak. 
Mm. But I was, I did like a warm up show. You know, I, I was, I was legally shredded. Yeah. Kind, yeah. kind of deal. So I was leaner than anybody typically diets to is not a competitor and trying to get to the elite level conditioning I brought in July. And Berto was like, all right, so we're going to do a harsh ass, basically protein modified fast, just vegetables and protein for a month when you're already shredded. Like he was like, hats off to you, bro. Like, yeah, this is, this is running across the middle and knowing you're going to get clobbered and just going to try to hold on to the ball. And I was like, it like, bro, I'll be fine. Like I have the space. I know what I can take. And that is just a, that level of um, self-awareness doesn't come early. And it is typically something that you almost try to breed out of yourself early on because you think it's a willpower game. Did you maintain so you think, muscle pretty well? Like like your strength and performance during that? I think I lost some. But then the cool thing was that I had all of June eating up. And mm, yeah, so like the level, the, the level of flatness that I got, um, it was bad. It looked like I was absolutely losing muscle. But then I just kept looking better each week and each week. And yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you saw the pictures that Jeff Nippert and I took when we were in Australia and the UEBC. This one's I got a beanie on. I think I saw a couple. Yeah, yeah. That was where that was like uh, three weeks into refeeding, and I looked dramatically different. I was like, "Oh shit, that's the best I've ever looked," you know. So, but if I had tried to replicate those pictures three weeks prior, it would have been like, "Ooh, you look dieted," you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Springy. So. Yeah, it's the kind of thing where um, I knew we were nearly ready to eat up, but and Berto wanted to start doing it like three or four weeks later, so that I'd have two weeks or one week into the first show and then four weeks into the next one. And I was like, "Hey, man, um, let's eat up for longer. We can try to see if we can make up some of this on the back end, and let's do it now, just because my life won't be conducive." And he was like, "Here's what's going to happen. I don't prefer this option." And I was like, listen, it'll be worse if we try it this way. Cause I can't, I can't change the fact that I have three student proposals, five different presentations and I have to be yeah. at work. And if I'm dieting like that, it's, it's going to be bad and I'll be more stressed and it'll make this worse and I won't sleep and we're going to get the same effect, you know? So he was like, all right, cool. And it, it worked, you know? Um, all I can say is I look worse and then I look better and I look the best I ever had. Could I have been even better if I'd done it the optimal way? Maybe, but it wasn't an option. Right. You know, I can't yeah, yeah. can't tell my my students and my boss and AUT like, hey, guess what? I'm sorry, I'm I'm getting on stage in a speedo, and that's a priority. Yeah, right, right. Um, when you get that lean though, you were talking about the wardrobes, which also made me laugh because I mean, you must have three because I I think recently, and I, I've been surprised by the differences as I've gone up. So I'm the heaviest I've been in a while. And uh, the nice thing is my arms are the biggest they've ever been at this size, uh, not measured by ultrasound, but by tape measure. <laughs> and uh, so so while that is cool, and the uh, the nurse the other day, she said, oh, I got to get the big uh, blood pressure monitor for you, the big cuff. Hey, I was like, the there, you go, there you go. <laughs> but uh, the downside is I had to buy my biggest pair of pants ever. And I was thinking, I was like, this is not the heaviest I've ever been. It's just the heaviest I've been in a while. And I was like, why is that? And then I realized because when I was like 216 to 220 almost, I was in dental school and I wore scrubs all the time. So it never really mattered other than, and I will admit this, when I would like go home for holidays and I'd have like jeans on, I would just have my jeans unbuttoned half the time because nice. I just didn't want to buy anything else. And uh, I wore scrubs like 98% of the time. So now I, I wear professional clothes and jeans and um and chinos and whatnot. So you go up five pounds and I'm like, oh, these kind of like tight pants I had at 190 at 196, they're they are tight. 
And at 200, I am very uncomfortable. And so eventually I was like, you know what? I got to do it. If I'm committed to this bulk, I just got to get some, some fat pants. And that's where I'm at. Good man. Good man. Yeah, I think the way I do it is that I have mostly like fitness clothes. So they have, they all have some amount of stretchy plastic in them. So there's like a, instead of not fitting five pounds to five pounds, like dress clothes, mm-hmm. like a Lululemon polo will work within a, a pretty decent range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and they last a long time and they'll replace it if you get holes. So even though it's expensive, oh. it's actually economical long term, if you just go in and be like, um, did you notice that you have a whole <laughs> very high quality thing? Will you replace this? So that that's kind of the way I do it without spending a boat ton of money. Yeah, yeah, nice, nice. What did you think of my uh, my dumbbell idea? The uh, I like it. I I I like. I think I commented in there. I want to get it to the neutron star density. Yeah, yeah, ones, yeah. You know, yeah. So or you just need like a like a penny in each hand, and it's like right hundred kilos. Yeah. yeah, people who don't know, I just said I, I've actually had this idea for a long time. If we ignore potential radiation and like mercury poisoning and, and everything else that could go wrong here, to just have a set of dumbbells that instead of getting bigger, it's just denser and denser materials. You know, you got some gold, whatever diamond weighs. You know, I, I think that'd be a pretty badass dumbbell set. Well, the one thing I've always disliked about dumbbells is the bigger they get, sometimes they reduce your range of motion as the diameter mm. changes because they touch you. So, right. yeah, I'm a fan. Or just use machines. There we go. Cool, man. Well, uh, you know, I'm proud to see how well you're doing for this season. And we got another big one ahead. So very much looking forward to our next catch up to see how that goes. Um, anything, I mean, we, we discussed a lot there, but anything you left out or you feel like we covered everything with your season and updates? No, man, it's just, it was a, it was a pleasurable chat. I know my brain kind of jumped all over and no, no, um, it's good. And we had, we had a good discussion. I, I just always appreciate when you, when you let me ramble and come on, it's always a fun chat and you've, we we've known each other and been on, been, been having these chats for a long time. So it's just cool. We catch up with a friend. Yeah, man. Well, the, uh, let's see, I've been doing this since 2018. You were one of the first, and this is our fifth one together. So we're averaging one a year. Um, and it's always good, man. Like you become a friend of mine in the industry and the, the talks have gotten more enjoyable because, you know, when you start a podcast, you're not sure how it's going to go at this point. It's just chatting with a friend. So it's always good. Appreciate you, man. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing good work and, and look at you making late stage gains, (laughs) even though it's after the first five years, you know, I mean, you're going to have another depressed, you know, cynical arc, but right now live in this optimism, (laughs) right? Let us all live there with you, right? Yeah. So, uh, where can people find your stuff, man? Hey, best place to find my stuff is 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, muscle journey. And that's the first one I bring up because we spent a whole lot of time talking about bodybuilding. And that is the bodybuilding place to go. But of course, if you hate hearing about me as an athlete and you just like my brain, not my body, check out massresearchreview.com and you can hear all of my thoughts. Um, like, like you mentioned, had a really cool interview where we discussed the, the the best of our knowledge of the science on peaking and all kinds of other stuff going all the way back to when we started in 2017. Um, and if you don't want to subscribe, that's fine because you can check us out on Mass Research Review, uh, YouTube, our Instagram. We're regularly posting on there now. We have office hours that are open to everybody live every week where you can ask us questions. Um, yeah, so those are probably the two best, best places. And if you want to kind of stay up with all the things I do, like these awesome podcast appearances, Follow me at Helms3DMJ. Awesome. Thanks again, man. My pleasure. Thank you.